Well, we start a new sermon series today uh, in the book of Luke, and uh, we've entitled it The Doctor's Cure. Healthcare industry in the U.S. is uh, not only a topic, main topic of conversation as we've had this, uh, these um, debates the last seven, eight years on whether a nationalized healthcare plan is, uh, makes any sense or not. Of course, things are changing with that, but um, the reason there's been so much discussion about that is because healthcare is a very big deal. It's a big deal economically. Healthcare in this nation is a $1.668 trillion industry. You just think about that. Well, almost $2 trillion devoted to healthcare in this country. There are nearly 800,000 companies that are healthcare companies. Almost 17 million Americans are employed in the healthcare industry. Think about that. That represents 5% of America's entire population. And if you just compare 16 point some million workers with the rest of the employment force, that percentage goes up significantly. Healthcare is a big deal. Why is that? Because we're concerned about our health. Everybody wants to have good health. I went to see my doctor this week and had a couple of spots on my body cut off, froze off. Barnacles, my doctor calls them. He says they happen as we get older. Thank you, doc. So we all have a doctor. We all have a dentist. We go to to try to keep our bodies in good health. Um, we want to make sure that if we get a new job, hopefully they'll be able to offer us health care. It's a big deal. Nobody lives longer in the world. Well, that's, I guess that's somewhat debatable. I think it's still uh, true in, by most experts that nobody lives longer in the world than Americans. And so, you know, as we age, of course, we have more problems. Um, we have to see the doctor more often. If you ever watch daytime television, it, it's kind of, ugh, it's icky. It's, uh, it's always about this medicine or that medicine that, that uh, you might want to get. And I'm like, why is that? Oh, Retired people are the one, only ones watching daytime television. And so they go down all the, over all of these pharmaceuticals that you might have. Do, do you ever think it odd that in the middle of those advertisements, they spend about half the time telling you how you might well die if you take this? Just seems, I guess they have to do that. But the, you know, the violin music playing in the background, is, it seems to tell me when I'm watching this is, don't worry about this. Everything will be okay. Just ignore the fact that you might have seizures and die. We care about our bodies. And yet isn't it interesting how many people you know and I know and maybe some of you are part of this crowd. That for all the attention we pay to our physical body, to our, our body's well-being totally miss and overlook the well-being of what's inside. Don't think about what will not just kill us, what could not just kill us, but might keep us consciously dead for all eternity in an unpleasant way. Let me take you to Jeremiah chapter 
17. We'll get to Luke in a minute, but start with Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. If you were in uh, Brian uh, Lefevre's ABF last Sunday, you heard this passage read. If you grew up in the church, it might be that you memorized this when you were growing up. If you didn't, it's a great verse to memorize. It says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who knows, really knows how bad it is? Now, depending on your translation, many translations, especially the ones that are most literal, don't say wicked, but have some kind of wording that speaks about uh, what would be a, a physical problem. And so, for example, the NIV says the heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. The ESV says it's desperately sick. The HCSB says it's incurable. All the NLT did was take the metaphor and make it blunt. The metaphor is you have a a physical problem. It's the heart is damaged. But really what God is saying, and Jeremiah here is just uh, mouthing God's words, what God is saying is, my heart, my inner being, my, my mind, my thoughts, my inclinations, my desires, my wants, my, uh, the things I don't want, this is all fundamentally, innately wicked. It's, it, it's got a massive, massive problem. And so the book of Luke is going to offer us the cure. The cure is Jesus. And who better to tell us about him and his cure than a doctor himself? Let me have you start with Colossians chapter 4 in your New Testament, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians chapter 4, verse 14. And this is Paul writing. He says, Luke, the beloved doctor, sends his greetings, and so does Demas. Now, Obviously, if Luke is a physician in this day, he didn't go to Harvard Med School or one of the prestigious med schools, but he was certainly trained as a doctor to the extent that the training um, amounted to in those days. And certainly, um, the other thing we know about Luke is that he was a colleague of Paul's. He went along with him on missionary trips, Second <clears throat> Timothy 4.11. Um, be good to have a doctor when you're going here and there and everywhere. Maybe you get sick in some place where uh, there is no doctor. And so to have somebody with you that's kind of on standby would be great. Uh, but Luke was also seems to have been a, a co-missionary uh, with Paul. There's another piece of interesting information about this man, and that it was that he seems like he was a Gentile. We don't know that for sure. Luke never really speaks about himself in his writings. I shouldn't say he doesn't speak about himself, but he doesn't describe himself at all. Never actually puts his name to the book that he wrote. Uh, Church tradition passes down to us that he wrote both Luke and Acts. Uh, So he doesn't make make much of himself. Um, But there's interesting little notes throughout the book of Luke that suggests that he would be a Gentile because he tends to highlight the things that Jesus said and did that um, profiled Gentile people, maybe Gentile people that he healed and so forth. 
And it's true that Jesus' ministry primarily here on earth was to Jewish people, but it exploded to the Gentiles after Jesus went back to heaven, and that wasn't by accident. Uh, Looking again at Colossians 4, starting at verse, well, I'll I'll start at verse 11. He mentions a couple of people prior to this. Paul mentions a couple of people that were um, fellow workers with him. And then he says this in verse 11, uh, Jesus, and this isn't not Jesus the Messiah. Jesus was a common Greek name. It was the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua. Jesus, the one we call justice, also sends his greetings. These are the only Jewish believers among my co-workers. And so then he goes on after this to mention a couple other people, including Luke. And so the conclusion is, okay, you had Jewish workers, and then there was Luke and Epaphras and a couple other people that were, that were Gentiles. If that's the case, it's interesting because that would make Luke the only author in any book in the Bible that's not Jewish, which is kind of a, a suggestion, a little interesting suggestion to the early church that God had bigger plans for the world than just for the Jewish people. All right, so that's a little background with, uh, with Luke, who Luke is. The rest of our time, I want to have us look at the first ver- four verses in the book of Luke and try to ask the question, is this guy who we're going to be listening to for a long time, is he trustworthy? In other words, what is, is what he says um, worth listening to? Can we be sure that he is accurate uh, if so, why? If not, why not? So let me have you turn with me to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. We'll read it and then pray. <clears throat> Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write a careful account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Father, I pray uh, for the power of the Holy Spirit to take your holy word this morning and uh, offer us some things that will lay a good foundation for our, our months ahead as we Um, Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the ministry of Jesus, the things that he did, the words of Jesus, the things that he said, um, and the the mission of Jesus, what he accomplished. And take all of that and as believers integrate it into our lives. See how um, Jesus meant for those in his kingdom to live. And maybe for some who are not believers to, to look at what Jesus says about the heart and what he offers the heart in terms of hope. Um, Lay a good foundation for us today. I pray that the Holy Spirit might utilize what I say in such a way that it glorifies you. If I say stupid things and things that aren't true, I pray that they would all be forgotten and that your words would be remembered. For Jesus' sake, amen. All right, so we're just going to try to ask and answer this question this morning. Is the reporter or the biographer is the reporter um, who's going to tell us about this cure for the, for the human heart. And again, we're not talking about the organ that pumps blood in us, but all the immaterial um, piece of each of us. Is the cure that he's going to be offer, offering us one we should put confidence in? And of course, we're asking whether or not the messenger of the message is reliable. Now, 
I think in the day and age in which we live, not only because we're human, but because of this age, we have a difficult time sorting out the true from the false. I don't know if you um, listened at all to, to what President Obama said in, uh, on his whirlwind tour this week. He was in Germany. He said this on Thursday. He said, democracy is weakened if we are not serious about facts and what is true and what is not. Particularly in an age of social media when people get, are getting their information in sound bites and snippets. If we cannot discriminate between serious arguments and propaganda, then we have problems. Now, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a news junkie, and I follow politics a lot. I look at all this stuff, and I, I hear people like this talking about in, uh, truth and so forth, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. I hear stuff coming out of your mouth that I don't really trust, and, and you kind of make this uh, other people that disagree with me don't know what truth is. So we're not going to go too political this morning, but in the wake of the election, it is um, uh, worthy to think about how can we figure out what's true and what's false? How can we discern which, what's, what's true and what's false? And I would agree with this, um, um, kind of ta- lifting from President Obama's speech, I would say this. Not only is democracy weakened if we can't sort out the true from the false, but Faith is weakened if we can't sort out the true from the false. I get into a lot of discussions with people who claim to be Christians but don't believe all of the Bible. And I'm like, you should get rid of your faith. You have an artificial faith. It's being propped up by what? Because either the book is true or the book is false. That was the conclusion of the early church. And they thought there were good reasons to ensconce the books that they did into the Bible. And they thought there were good reasons to jettison and throw out books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and other spurious books that sometimes appear in the news. But we have a a challenge before us to try to figure out what is true and what is false in the world in general, but uh, certainly in the scriptures when we come to them as well. Uh, there is a uh, th- there is a um, an air about our culture that makes us I-, I think all of us believer and unbeliever alike prone to skepticism. We're schooled in skepticism in a lot of different ways. Uh, we have frauds floating around everywhere. Uh, about a month ago, I got another email uh, from a purported wife of some African dictator who had a lot of money she wanted to put in my bank account if I would just give her the routing numbers of my bank account. Now, I, I, to me, it is, I had a season maybe four or five years ago where I'd get these things all the time. Uh, to me, it is still amazing that this Nigerian scam has legs after so many years. And yet I just read about two years ago about a pastor in New England who's now in jail for bank fraud. He coughed up $50,000 for one of these Nigerian uh, email scams. About six months ago, my dad got a phone call from the IRS telling him he, he was in big trouble and uh, he needed to, uh, they were willing to settle with him over the phone if he doesn't hang up. But if he hangs up, he's probably going to go to jail. And of course, my dad, my dad was, huh. I'm like, it's okay, Dad. It's a scam. Uh, there's nothing to it. You don't need to worry. If the IRS is going to come after you, they're not going to call you on the phone and offer to settle over the phone. It's 
doesn't happen. So we have things like this everywhere. The internet has become a, a cesspool of fraud and scams. So our radar is up for, I'm not sure about that. And with good reason. We, we learn to, to think if something sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't true. We have a lot of things in our culture that school us and shape us to be skeptics. Marketers. Any marketers in here? I don't want to throw your uh, career under the bus. Well, I'm going to. You can make a lot of money in marketing today. Why is that? Because a good marketing firm will enable its client, whether it's selling goods or services, to make a lot more money. Because they're going to convince people that they should buy their goods and services. And we do that uh, by shaping uh, the, the, the medium is the message. The message is no longer the product, but how we, how we convey the message becomes the power. And so whether it's a commercial on television or it's something you see on the internet or even it's something a friend tells you, by how it's conveyed, you're convinced this is something you should do. And then you order it and you're like, wow. That doesn't live up to the hype after all. You send it back to Amazon. Marketing shapes us to be skeptical because we've all had the experience of buying something or, or paying for something that didn't turn out to be as all that we hoped it would be. I'm, I'm kind of a nut. I do a lot of uh, my buying through Amazon, and I'm kind of a nut about examining reviews because I don't trust the marketing. And so I look at reviews. I, it'll sometimes take me two years to buy a product because I have to wade through so many reviews. I don't know. How sick is that? And, and you know, and you have to try to weigh, you know, are the bad reviews, um, are, are they things that would bother me? Are there somebody just have, a, you know, bone to pick with the company? But, but marketing itself, I, the advertising doesn't persuade me. So we, we're kind of groomed to be skeptical by the commerce and the advertising and the marketing. Politics. Man, does that ever groom us to be skeptical. I mean, I, I, like I say, I'm a junkie of news and politics, but I, pretty much I look at the politicians and I say, if their mouths are open, open they're lying to me. Just don't believe much of anything I hear. Even in this digital age, it boggles my mind how stuff can be put up on a television screen that was taped from 10, 20 years ago, and you see the person saying this, and now you see them being interviewed by a journalist, asked about that, and they say, oh, I didn't say that. Uh, it 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 was on the screen over there. Yeah, but I didn't say that. I don't know what to do with that. I want to shoot somebody. (laughs) Drives me crazy. You shouldn't be able to get away with that in the digital age when everything is stored, recorded, and played back. You shouldn't be able to to do that and have anybody believe you. Social media. There's a big discussion in the wake of the election about the false stories that are being, were being put out over uh, Facebook during the election and whether or not that skewed the results of the election. 
I mean, I didn't know this stuff happened. I saw, I saw a story the other night about a guy who works from his home. He gets up in his PJs, and he goes to his computer, and he fabricates news stories. Doesn't, doesn't use anything as background. He just makes it up, and he admits it. And he makes $10,000 a month doing this. And I'm so old that I can't figure out how you can make money creating stories. On the, I just don't understand how that commerce piece works. But apparently he does. Makes a good living at it. And then there are the universities. <laughs> Those of you who have gone to college... One of the initial things that you are taught, and I don't care whether it's secular university or Christian college, there is a pushback by the professors to challenge you to rethink everything you've ever believed, learned, or been taught. Now, in some ways, I think that's a good thing. As a, as a person of faith, I think that's valuable. And I know some of you are scared to let your kids go to a secular university because they'll be challenged in things and their faith will fall apart. Listen. If your faith and your child's faith cannot withstand testing and scrutiny, it was a false faith to begin with. And far better for them to discover in their college years that it's a false faith than to discover when they're 30, 40, 50 years old. Because the repercussions are so devastating far beyond their own lives. But you go to the university and you are going to be pushed to doubt. Pushed to be skeptical. Do, do you, all I'm getting at is that we are just conditioned to raise questions about pretty much everything. Is it a bad thing? Not sure it is. But when we come to the scriptures, people who don't know Christ are going to push back against us and say, you doubt so many other things, why aren't you, aren't you willing to doubt your scriptures? fair question. The Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we may take that line and and look at our scriptures and say, okay, I can't question scripture or push, push back against scripture because that is not a manifestation of faith. Well, here's the thing. The Bible on its own gives us Um, evidence that it wants to be taken seriously as authentic journalistic reporting. And I think it's interesting these verses themselves try to do that. Now, we have another fundamental skeptical bias as people living in 2016. And that is anything older than 20 years ago we can't believe. The, the, the uh, modernistic or postmodern um, idea about writings is um, inherently biased against old writings, especially anything a couple thousand years old. And that's true whether it's uh, the, uh, the scriptures or uh, a historian like Tacitus or Herodotus. We just we, we think it can't be true if it's old. What nonsense! Living in the world that we live in where falsehood is just rampant, I mean, do we really have less confidence in uh, people writing 2,000 years ago than we do today? The fact of the matter is there was a lot less interest in being published 
1,000, 2,000 years ago than there is today. In other words, there are a lot of writing that takes place today is primarily about making money. You think about a guy like Luke, didn't even put his name on the book of Luke, didn't even sign his name to the book of Acts, and yet there's evidence that he wrote both of them. He wasn't concerned about money. He was concerned about basics. He was concerned that, that the the reporting that he's going to be done is going to be received and, and well accepted. And let me just give you a, a, a couple of things here about uh, that are buried in his uh, account that give us some assurance that uh, what he wrote was accurate. Um, I'm working on having an apologetics seminar here at, at Keystone uh, next year sometime. And the presenter will help us with some of these things in Scripture. Um, what we can look at in Scripture that will give us confidence that this is true. But let me just give you a a little taste of that here. Looking at Luke chapter 3, verse 1. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman Empire. And, And we should say, when we're looking at ancient writings... Um, one of the things that is a hallmark of trustworthy ancient writings is to ground their writing in um, events, um, geographic places, um, rulers. In other words, things that history would have likely been able to verify thousands of years later. And so when we start reading things like this, okay, um, Tiberius is the Roman emperor. Well, those are things that are easily checked out even a couple thousand years later. And so a writer who is going to um, uh, try to fool someone is not going to put these kinds of things in that will give us some leverage in, in figuring out whether they're authentic or not. So he goes on, Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was ruler over Abilene, not Texas. Now, Lysanias is the first thing I want to point out because for years, uh, scholars were looking at this saying, that's wrong, Luke blew it. Lysanias lived 60 years before the time of Christ, uh, Christ's ministry. Um, He was a ruler who was um, murdered or executed by Mark Antony. So Luke screwed up. And so then the obvious implication is, where else did Luke screw up? And then in 1737, archaeologists discovered a temple with an inscription on it about Lysanias. And they knew based on where the temple was, and um, its age, they knew this was a different Lysanias. And he was identified in a different way than this previous Lysanias in terms of his leadership role. And comes to realize that Luke was right. The other historians before, him, before 1737 were wrong. That Luke was able to be verified. In fact, in the same chapter... I'm sorry, in the same verse, it says Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. That's the NLT, has a foot uh, asterisk beside ruler. If you look at the footnote, it says he, actually the original text says that he was a tetrarch. Herod Antipas was a 
tetrarch. And history has proved that this, this man was, he was considered a king for years and years, but archaeological discoveries have now proved that no, he wasn't a king. He was a tetrarch. It might not make any sense to us, but it was a major distinction back in those days. It's interesting, uh, a historian, archaeologist by the name of Sir William Ramsey, late 18th century, um, like some other people down through history, was a skeptic, and he was determined to prove the scriptures wrong, specifically Luke. Luke was a, what Luke wrote in his gospel and in the book of Acts bothered him immensely, and he became a world-renowned archaeologist um, doing archaeological digs in Greece and the Middle East ended up becoming a Christian through his archaeological studies. And this is what he says at the end of his life. I set out to look for truth on the borderland where Greece and Asia meet, and I found it in Acts. You may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. And so when Luke says at the beginning there, first of all, he's referring to other, uh, other gospel accounts. Um, they use the eyewitness reports, and eyewitness reports matter more than somebody reporting 100 to 200 years later. So they were, they were faithful in their sources. Now I, carefully, verse 3, carefully investigating everything from the beginning, I have also decided to write a careful account for you so that you may be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Careful investigation, that's good journalism. And then he's writing a careful account for um, this, really, an audience of one that became an audience of millions down through the ages. Careful account for you, written, also good journalism, so that you can be certain of the truth. In other words, Luke's overarching concern is that this man's uh, confidence in what he has been taught will be reinforced. Now, I don't know about you, but that gives me some assurance as I go beyond here. Because, again, Luke's got, he's got no axe to grind. He's got no personal stake in this other than the faith itself. And he desires that the cure that he is about to tell you and I about be understood as trustworthy, be verifiable. Because if we get this, listen, if we get the wrong candidate, we have four years of problems. If we get the wrong heart cure, we have an eternal problem. And so whether or not Luke gets this right is going to matter to us a great deal in the months ahead. It's going to matter when Jesus confronts you and I, perhaps with some new ways of thinking about how we view money and how we spend our money and how we save our money. Whether this is true or false is going to matter when Jesus confronts us about our attitudes towards those who don't have as much money as we do or who have more than we do or who aren't from the same language group as we are or who aren't from the same ethnic background as we are. It's going to matter whether this is true or false when Jesus puts your faith and my faith under a microscope and tells us it's not what you think it is. It's going to matter when we hear talk about things like demons and demon possession. 
It's going to matter when Jesus says that maybe we've mistakenly thought his mission would make things go smoothly for us who follow him rather than make things come apart. When Jesus says things like, you thought I came to bring peace? (laughs) Mm -mm. I came to bring division. In fact, concluding whether or not Luke is trustworthy will matter most when you and I are hit with a three-chapter story of Jesus being set up, sold out, brought up in charges, beat up, hung up, and poured out before being raised up. This, we're going to read, is the heavenly cure for the incurable human heart. Let's pray. And Father, as we begin this journey, may our hearts be pliable. May we abandon pre-existing convictions and be shaped and molded by the truth that Luke sets before us, by the words of our Savior, by the actions of our Savior, by the mission of our Savior. And for those who don't know Christ, whose hearts are stuck in this no-man's land of deception and wickedness, may they discover there is a cure for their incurable heart. It's given by a God who loved them and gave his son for them.